This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers, where you can access a vast selection of global fixed income securities in their Interactive Brokers bond marketplace. You can search the deep availability of over 1 million bonds globally. IBKR has no markups or built-in spreads and low, fully transparent commissions on bonds. IBKR displays the highest bids and lowest offers received from the electronic venues they access. In addition, clients can interact with each other by placing bids and offers online to execute their trades. Learn more at IBKR.com slash bonds. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. May market madness, tech versus everything else. Politicians creating problems just to fix them. My heroes. Bifurcating markets, that is of interest. And our guest today is Tom Nelson, lead portfolio manager at Franklin Templeton Funds. All this and much more on episode number 819 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to the summer. What do you do on Memorial Day? You have some fun? Hopefully you went out, you did your thing, the summer thing. Get out there, splash around, get some sun. I just got back from Ireland and London. You know I was going there. I got back just in time for that Memorial Day barbecue. It was awesome. Got some pool, got some drink, got some roasted pig and hamburgers, all that good stuff. That's the way to do it. And the watermelon, of course, to finish it off, that is like that that essence that starts the summer. So I'm really happy about that. Hopefully you too did something fun. A quick intro for the newbies out there. Those of you who haven't listened before, I'm Andrew Horowitz. I'm president and founder of Horowitz Company. It's a, an investment advisory firm. We manage money. That's what we do for clients, for accounts as little as 10,000 to in the millions. Uh, but basically what we do is we research, we find the areas that we want to be in, things that we want to stay away from, from an, from an economic standpoint, from a fundamental standpoint. And that's how we generate the information each and every week for discussion on the show. It's not some just academic adventure that we think and maybe, but it's, an, it's, it's actionable ideas. So something for you to know about there. I thought we'd start with a conversation today about, about May and a quick update. It's weird. It's been an interesting situation, very much the opposite, almost a mirror reflection of what we saw in the entirety of 2022. It's almost like there's this feeling that, wow, all of that was just, that was mistaken. The idea that higher interest rates are going to hurt margins. No, no, no. The, the idea that, you know, we're going to see that the earnings pressures are going to be just nothing for the tech companies, which they've been very resilient. There's no question about that. But this bifurcation, like we haven't seen in a very, very long time, tech stole the show this year, but in particular last month. You know, we had a craze again, whether it was back in the days of Beanie Babies all the way through uh, blockchain and into 
various areas of um, you know COVID related or whatever the buzzword of the day was. Right now, it's AI. Right, it was cloud for a while. We had that going on. It was Bitcoin for a while and cryptocurrency and mining and all. And there's always these things, right? You know, Internet of the 2000s and Y2K, right up until 1999 to the end, right until the doorstep of 2000. All of that is creating a buzz, and it is very well and apparent. It's apparent. Because everybody that's coming out with discussion, whether it's NVIDIA, whether it's AMD, whether it's any stock you are seeing, and, and Salesforce, by the way, you know, they are all talking the same language, that something is going to be related to AI and whatever they're doing. The fact that they are maybe just getting involved, it doesn't matter. Stocks are blowing up in a big way, up, upside, not downside, blowing up with just the sense that something is going to be working with AI that is going to help them maybe one, sell more products, two, refine their cost structure as a company themselves, maybe do away with some people, which is not really being talked about as much as it should be. And that is what's happening right now. So what we're seeing is a very big differential in returns for markets. In fact, if we take a look at May, I'm just going back to the month, Here's something to, in, to to really to look at. Well, it's 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 shocking. Equities. If we look at the quadrants from a nine box quadrant, think about a square, nine boxes, and we look at large cap, mid cap, small cap. We look at value, blend, and growth. Let's get rid of the entirety of the of the blend area just for a moment. Large cap growth. That's consistent with our technology companies that are leading the way. All those major, highly, uh, the, the mega, truly uber mega caps led the way. Up 5% for the month. That's pretty good. NASDAQ was up like 8.5. But large cap value down 4.12%, leaving the Russell 1000 in totality at only up 0.71% for the month. So it looked like this was a great month going on because we saw things like, you know, the Googles and the, the Apples, and we saw, um, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Meta. You know the list, right? All doing really well. They stole the show. They have a substantial and an inordinate, inordinately large level of sway on markets. So we see that, the mid-caps value down 5%, where the mid-cap growths were just flat. The small caps down for the month, but the growth was flat. So the value side really got obliterated, and that was due to some of the financial areas and energy. That was a big issue. But when we looked down the list in May, it wasn't as good as it seemed, even though we're seeing like nine months highs, right? And a lot of that, again, is due to the fact that the indices have this incredible amount of market cap waiting going on in them. U.S. stocks overall for the month were up 0.39%. Global stocks, ex-U.S., were down 1.8%. Bonds were up slightly for the month. Uh, real estate was, uh, you know, kind of, uh, excuse me, that was for the week. U.S. stocks were, uh, same thing. Uh, global stocks, ex-U.S., were down 3.64%. U.S. real estate down 4% for the month. So, What's going on right now is a very interesting situation. When we go from top to bottom, it's very interesting where the growth, the larger you are, the better it was. Year to date, large growth is up 24%. 
24%. Large value year-to-date is down 3.4%. Wow. 27% differential. 27%. That's absurd. I mean, when we're looking at the situation that we're seeing right now, Whereas the idea that none of the things that are happening right now is going to hurt anything. And technology shares that were up 8.92% for the month, energy down 10%, 10% for the month, which they had to cool off a little bit, I'll give you that. But the truth of the matter is what we're seeing right now is a very weird correlation matrix. Technology right now, if you look at the S&P 500, is weighted at uh, 27% of the total S&P 500. No wonder we're seeing a good market and ugly-looking stocks. Is it anything more than a very simple discussion about the construction of the indices? I don't think so. I think that's really the heart of it all. So when it comes to what we're seeing right now, I think it's important to recognize that what we are, are, are really realizing is, well, maybe things aren't as bad as they were, but boy, some of this outperformance of some of these areas, pretty absurd. Something to think about. Something to think about. So let's get to our guest. How about that? We'll uh, discuss these points and others with him. So with that, let me tell you a little bit about our guest that we have on today. Tom Nelson, he's the Senior Vice President and Head of Asset Allocation Portfolio Management for Franklin Templeton Investment Solutions. And he's a member of the Investment Strategy and Research Committee. He's a portfolio manager, number of funds offered uh, for sale in various jurisdictions. He leads the portfolio manager. He's the lead portfolio manager um, of the Franklin Next Step Fund Series, the VolSmart allocation. A lot of things going on that he does. He's involved also in the LifeSmart Retirement Target Funds. Um, he's been with uh, Templeton, uh, Franklin Templeton since 2007. What's interesting is that he co-founded the firm's quantitative research services group when he joined the company. And he moved to Franklin Templeton Investment Solutions in 2009. Before that, he was working with, um, uh, prior to working with uh, that, before he was working with Franklin Templeton, he worked for Bloomberg from 91 to 2007, where he's recently, uh, in the last part of his career at Bloomberg, was the manager of the America's Market Specialist team. So that's pretty cool. I know him personally, actually. Uh, we, we spend time together. He lives very close to me. And um, he's a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. Um, he's also a Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst, which is CAIA. Uh, lots of great information. So I thought that would be great to bring Tom on today to go over some real good, in-depth discussion about asset allocation. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Andrew. So, I want to talk. There's so many questions I have and things I want to go over. But but first, you know, you have you have, you have some great cred, so that's good. And uh, what I wanted to do is go back because, I mean, I have a history of, of of Franklin Templeton, knowing them. As a matter of fact, when I first came to town in Fort Lauderdale, that was like the one of the biggest buildings down here was the Templeton headquarters in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Right. So so, uh, the 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 mashup between Templeton and Franklin was kind of a as I saw it always, was a global equity meets fixed income. Mm -hmm. And that was that marriage. So I want to go back even further, though, and tell me a little bit about how your journey started, how you got interested in the, the area of quant investing and how it's changed over the years. You know, kind of give me a little bit about Tom. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, I guess a bit of a history lesson there. So I started my career back in 1991 um, as kind of a freshly minted college graduate and secured a job at a small financial services firm by the name of Bloomberg Mm. that no one had really heard of at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was a fantastic ride. And and that kind of proverbial first job out of school turned into a 16 year run. Uh, I did a whole number of really cool things and was exposed to some of the best investors and traders during my time there, learned a ton about financial technology and data and data analysis. And always kind of in the back of my mind, I knew that I wanted to manage portfolios. And I had built a few systematic stock selection tools, i.e. quant models, kind of at at nights and on weekends that I thought were really interesting. Um, Of course, I used Bloomberg for for much of that work. Mm -hmm. And it was around the time that I was doing a lot of work with the chief investment officer of the Templeton Global Equity Group, um, based both here in Fort Lauderdale as well as in Nassau, Bahamas. And he turned to me one day after looking at this and and asked if I'd ever be interested in coming to work for him. And so rather than working for him directly, um, I, and along with one of my teammates, was hired by Franklin Templeton in September of 2007. Horrible timing, by the way, (laughs) to start a quant research group that would kind of do different project work across the organization. And... One of the teams at the firm that I did the most work with was our multi-asset investment team that's now known as Franklin Templeton Investment Solutions. And I ended up moving into FTIS, the mnemonic for our team, in March of 2009. That was awesome timing, by the way. That was fantastic. It made it up. Yeah. So so being a free agent in the middle of 2008, working across the, the firm, but not tethered to any investment team was not a good thing. Um, and so in, in March of 09, which coincided with the coincidentally coincided with the bottom of the equity market at the end of the global financial crisis. Um, and, and I've been with that group since then. And today I lead our asset allocation portfolio management team, as well as the asset class research that drives our positioning across roughly 42 billion in assets that the team manages. So when you were, when you were getting involved in all of this and you were working at Bloomberg, and by the way, I have a a long history with Bloomberg as well. Um, back back then, you know, in the mid, I guess it was mid two thousands. There really was. I mean, it was, it was it was Thompson Reuters and and mm-hmm. it was Thompson. I don't even know if it was Thompson Reuters at that time. It was Thompson, right? And it was Bloomberg. That was the two. And Bloomberg was always really expensive. And the problem with Bloomberg that I had back in the day was, I don't need all this stuff. I need like eighteen yeah. percent of what they have. I don't need right. to. I don't want. I don't want the rest. Can I carve it out? No. Well, you, mm-hmm. you know, they keep coming. We have a great fixed income platform, one of the best. I'm like, I don't care. I don't use it. I don't need that. You know, yeah. but the other stuff was very cool. And that was in the beginning, by the way, when Bloomberg just started really getting into charting. Remember they had the worst charting at all? It was terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked with them on some projects actually back in the day. And I always liked going to the Bloomberg place in New York because they had such great snacks in the whole yeah. <laughs> we were well fed. It kept us in the office, uh, allowed them to pay us a little bit less yep. because we didn't necessarily have to go out and buy breakfast and and buy lunch. Yep. And it was a place that everybody kind of congregated and ran into each other and shared ideas. And, and that was very much an intentional thing uh, from a firm wide perspective. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Who who are your do you have any managers in the in the world of funds that you like? Wow. You know, looked up to like a Lynch, maybe or a. Sir John Templeton himself or, you know, anybody out there? 
Yeah, you know, I've been lucky enough to be exposed to some of the greatest investors and, and traders, both in my time at Bloomberg, and, and I, I did all sorts of different things at different parts of the organization, and in the 16 years since joining Franklin. Um, some of the names you'd recognize, some you might not. Um, you know, being a, 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 a multi-asset investor, which takes a, a kind of a macro orientation to things, folks like you know, Stan Druckenmiller have, oh. have had a fantastic, you know, multi-year or multi-decade uh, investment career uh, and, and always good to hear from folks like that. You know, but I've, I've really tried to soak up as much as I could in terms of knowledge and ways to incorporate that into how we think about markets and portfolios. Um, and it'd be really hard to walk through the halls of our office and not see Sir John Templeton quotes sprinkled yeah. all across the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we will abide by some of those tenets, right? So um, maybe it was better to be lucky than good. But in March of 2020, thinking about the Sir John Templeton quote of to buy when others are despondently selling mm-hmm. and sell when others are greedily buying requires the greatest fortitude and pays the greatest reward. Like we sucked it up and, and went overweight equities in the middle of, uh, you know, the COVID meltdown in, in, in March of 2020. It yeah. didn't feel comfortable. Um, <laughs> but those are oftentimes the best, you know, the best times to make investment decisions. Yeah, that's, that's one of those times that makes your, your butt squeeze a little bit hard yeah. when you're doing those kind of, of deals. It's like, okay, is this time, this time going to be different? You know, blood in the streets. I know it's supposed to be, but is this... Yeah. Is it, is it, it's their blood right now. I don't want my blood in the street, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that's another Sir John Templeton quote. The four most expensive words in the English language are this time it's different. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, that's that, and- that there's, there's, there's something to be said and all of us know that. I mean, that's something that, you know, when I look back and I think about who really was in the early days of my career, you know, where did you get that global um, coverage? It was Templeton. Mm-hmm. It was Templeton, yeah. what was it, Templeton World Fund, I think it was back then, right? Templeton the Foreign, World I think it was. World Fund and the Growth Fund, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah, that, that, was, the, that was a play. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So let's talk a little bit about active or passive. And I know mm-hmm. that, um, you know, as a fund manager, sometimes this comes up and it's, you know, it's always like active, active, active. But you're, you're doing things a little bit differently because you're also, you're running the um, asset allocation uh, yep. portfolio. So does how does that play into the process? So we leverage both active and passive strategies, right? So we are active managers, but we do leverage passive strategies for a couple of different reasons. One, to acquire inexpensive beta exposure in some of the more efficient asset classes. Okay, stop, and allow us stop. To- Let's explain yep. that to the audience. Okay. So for example, it's quite difficult to outperform the 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 U.S. equity market, U.S. large cap stocks, very efficient market. It's one of the most actively and heavily kind of researched and invested markets. And 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 so when we talk about beta exposure, we talk about just you know broad market exposure. And so rather than trying to beat the market in the more efficient most efficient areas we will seek to match the market and we will do so in passive products that invariably are quite inexpensive as well. Right. And we will utilize more active managers and active strategies in areas where there's less efficiency and the opportunities to outperform the market are better. 
areas like small cap stocks, mm-hmm. right? So the, the the major benchmark for the for for small cap stocks in the U.S. is the Russell 2000. So 2,000 names, 2,000 companies, small in size, not a lot of research coverage, not a lot of institutional ownership, and and greater opportunities to outperform through diligent research and analysis. Areas like emerging markets, where um, you know Dr. Mark Mobius, who's who's since retired from from the Templeton Group, um, was one of the the, the first and, and probably most famous of emerging market sure. investors. Yeah, traveling across the globe and and seeing companies in 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 far reaches around uh, you know Eastern Europe and 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 emerging Asia and Latin America. Um, areas like high yield, where you have some companies that. Um, have less than desirable traits, um, but but good opportunities to to achieve excess returns relative to benchmarks. And so we'll use more active strategies in areas where there are greater opportunities to to deliver better than market returns for for our investors. Yeah, it's interesting and, because you know that efficiency issue. This 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 narrative that's been developed over the years that you know invest in the cheapest and invest in asset allocation. You know the DFA you know mantra, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. You know which you know if if you don't if you don't talk their language, they hang up on you. You know they, they, that they're like a militant group. I don't know if you've ever yep. talked with DFA guys. I can't deal with them. Um, but the, the, the interesting thing about active and passive is that when we look at, you mentioned the, the Russell 2000, you know, the market cap of, uh, out of the Russell 3000, the 2000 smallest companies in that index. And what's interesting, just, just recently, the totality of the market capitalization of that index is equivalent to one Apple. Yeah. Which is pretty fascinating. So think how much, well, smaller, but how much less coverage there is on all of those when you get down the range. And when you think about things like when I, when I do this analysis, similar to you, we have a very similar conversation here going because I, I, I talk the same talk, which is, you know, I don't know in Vietnam uh, if it's really the most appropriate thing to have a passive investment because what if there's some accounting tricks that go on there and the political environment and the currency issues and all of that that go on. And it seems to me to have boots on the ground, a much better opportunity there. And, and same thing with bonds, where bonds are, people don't really know this, they're probably the least efficient investment out there compared to especially equities, right? It's, it's, an, yeah. it's better than it yeah. was years ago. Uh, but a lot of stuff can be stuffed and hidden inside of a bond price. Yes, yeah, so, exactly. And then when you also have a bond run or a change where people are selling out of the ETF, the ETF will be forced to sell out in proportion to the index itself, whereas a bond mutual fund will have the opportunity to say, oh, look at that deal. I'll buy that and mm-hmm. sell what they want to sell. Yes. So um, that's the, the same thing. All right. So I'm, I'm, well, let's put that in, 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 a, in a bucket and let's hold on to that as, uh, active and, and passive discussion. I just add one more yes. minor, minor point there. Surely. So, um, when we think about managing portfolios in a multi-asset, multi-asset context, we can add value through selecting the right underlying managers and strategies, mm-hmm. right? So there's active and passive from that perspective. And then the second, and where we've been able to deliver more value to shareholders over, over time is through making alloc- asset allocation decisions. So do we want more stocks? Do we want more bonds? Do we want more U.S. versus international? And it's much more efficient and easy and inexpensive to utilize passive strategies 
to facilitate those active asset allocation decisions. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, we manage about 42 billion in assets. If we decide across the board that we wanna add 3% to stocks and take 3% out of bonds, that's multiple billions of dollars of trades. Mm -hmm. And you can accomplish that more quickly, easily, efficiently through passive products than through active products. And so we also utilize passive to help facilitate the active asset allocation decisions within our portfolios. You know, back when you were starting out back in, what was it, 91 or something like that, I was on my on my way trying to, you know, be a big shot in the area of asset allocation because I got turned on to this whole idea of the efficient frontier back in the day, right? Um, yeah. and, and I would study everything that I could study. And I actually had some opportunities to spend some time with Brinson, B. Bauer, and Hood, and William Sharp. Um, had dinner with them in San Francisco. You know, this is the, the, the well, Brinson, B. Bauer, Hood, you know, wrote Determinants of portfolio performance. One of the things that was a big sticking point, you know, was stand deviation, downside variance. Um, there was this whole big thing about, you know, if you remember this, the the 90 plus percent of portfolio performance could be determined by the outlook. Remember that whole thing, that whole, yep. yeah, and, and, and it was it was bastardized to try to sell asset allocation. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. And it was like, it's like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm like, no, uh, excuse me. It's, it's, uh, no, it's, it's a determining factor of the pension plans that they studied. It was not this, uh, you know, I'm like, it's not that 94% of the, and, and I was spending an inordinate amount of time back then, by the way, plotting on the efficient frontier, historical data. I have all these software programs, uh, mm -hmm. to, to find out where that sweet spot was. And I'm like, okay, if we push this up by like 1% and change that, we can get a little bit lower on the risk, a little bit higher. And, and then one day after about, you know, two years of this, three years of this, I said, okay, mm -hmm. what is the difference? I mean, really, you know, yeah. in, in the big yeah. scheme of things, what are we, what am I doing? I'm, I'm like driving myself nuts here. Um, but the vi the, the vi and I, and I had some great discussions with, um, I had a discussion with B Bauer uh, about uh, their use of stand deviation instead of, um, you know, uh, a, just a downside variance because stand deviation mm -hmm. encompasses both up and downside volatility of a, 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 a around, I, I think of it around a zero line, right? That's what I think mm -hmm. about it as. Um, yeah. But who cares if you have this like crazy standard deviation that's always on the upside? Like, you know, you have right. all these volatility, but it's always like just generally, you know, could you could, that is theoretically possible. And um, I said, I really want to look at downside variance and see where the risk factors are on the losses. Isn't that much, isn't that, isn't that much more compelling? Yeah, we, we look a lot at um, conditional betas, conditional alphas, capture ratios. So mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a very high level example, um, if you're looking at a portfolio or, or an underlying manager, um, how do they do when the market's up? How much of that market upside does does the strategy capture when the market goes higher? What does that look like when the market goes down? Um, and what you want, ideally, is a little bit of asymmetry, i.e., capturing a little bit more of the upside when things are when things are good, and a little bit less of the downs than 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 the amount of downside that you capture when things are bad, right? Mm, right. And if you can capture, call it 102% of the upside and and 95% of the downside and do that fairly consistently because you know even being right 60% of the time can over decades lead to legendary results if you can do that fairly consistently over time 
you can deliver, you know, fantastic returns to shareholders. Right. And we spent a lot of time thinking about up, up capture and down capture and, and different ratios around those and and build that into portfolio construction, particularly when we're, when we're designing new strategies for clients to, as we sit down with them and say, what matters to you? You know, if if the market, if the equity market is up 10%, are you okay with being up seven? If the equity market is down 10% and you're down six, or do you want more of the upside? And, and so that that's part of the, the conversations that we have when we sit down um, with potential new clients, yeah. just to really understand the personality of the portfolio that, that they, they would look for us to build on their behalf. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk to you about um, changes in volatility models, and I want to talk to you about the the uh, the fabulous study. We're talking about these old studies and things. <laughs> just some things are just coming into my mind, and I was thinking about the old mountain charts, which we're going to talk about in a second. But um, we're going to do that on the backside. Okay. Look, we all know that times have changed a lot when it comes to cash and the interest that you could earn on it. And with Interactive Brokers, clients can earn up to 4.58% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances. In fact, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Compare IBKR's ability to pay you interest of up to 4.58% to other brokers. And, you know, a lot of them are paying less than half. That's just one of the many reasons that clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and so much more. When placing your money with a broker, look, you need to make sure that your broker is secure and can endure through good and bad times. IBKR's strong capital position and their conservative balance sheet, along with their automated risk controls, are designed to protect IBKR and its clients from large trading losses. That's important. And their prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions them to pay you higher interest rates and with demonstrated security and financial strength. Of course, we know that rates are subject to change. But I want you to know that Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. Go and visit IBKR.com slash interest rates to learn more. Let's get back to our discussion with Tom Nelson and... Uh, I was thinking about the, 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 remember the old mountain charts that I think was American funds that made famous, right? The American funds mountain charts of total return mm -hmm. of that. And then one of the big things back in the day was, you know, if you missed out on the 10 best days of the market, you would have lost out on, you know, 30% yeah, gain, whatever the numbers were. It was, it was absurd. Yeah. It was crazy, right? Yeah. How come nobody ever said, but what about the 10 worst days? If you put that in there, that's just not as something we don't talk about that. Remember that? Yeah, it doesn't help sell as much, I guess. <laughs> There's some facts. Let's talk about change of volatility mo models. And, and you know, with a with an environment of the last 15 years, plus minus, mm -hmm. of bailouts of everybody on any time of anything, lower interest rates, of course, things are a little bit differently now, different now. Mm -hmm. But um, when, when for a long time, we would actually use the VIX as a reasonable measure of, you know, short-term volatility potential or outlook, I should say. Mm -hmm. and, and and actually you could actually trade the VIX. It is it is kind of untradeable to a degree, the, the VIX option now I'm talking about, just the option. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what are the changes in volatility models in modern day? Uh, what, could, what couldn't someone look at to understand more about the potential or, or do we stay with the VIX? We generally stay with the VIX and we have a number of different risk models that we look at. Um, and the difference for the most part between the various risk models that we use 
is when we're predicting future volatility, mm-hmm. we use historic volatility to help inform what that future volatility should look like. And 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 the difference that 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 for the most part in the risk models that we use is that look back period. And that leads to how sensitive that risk model is to to changes in volatility. And for the most part, uh, we have a number of portfolios that we use that will take into account where volatility is. And when volatility breaches certain certain thresholds, we'll use that as a signal to kind of de-risk the portfolio overall. So when you look back and you're doing a historical reference of things, you know, I have a good friend, Tom McClellan. You know Tom McClellan? McClellan Oscillator and all those guys? Yep, yep. So, so, so uh, you know, he does a lot of work in the area of um, historical analogs with offsets, right? So like, I'll think of something crazy. I don't know, like, you know, uh, six-month treasury bills offset six months to – the Columbia stock market or something. I don't know, something crazy. And, 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 and you know, looks at all these different things. I mean, is, is, is that kind of how you would look at that? Or were you looking at more, well, when there was a war present and an interest rate environment that was on the rise, this happened, that's the uh, historical reference we can utilize. Um, it's a little bit of the boat of both. And I'm pulling up my, my chart of the VIX right now, and, and maybe to use a, an extreme example, um, was for example, 2020, right? Uh-huh. Um, the VIX, when we ended 2019, was somewhere in the vicinity of call it 15, okay. right? That's about the normal um, level. That's normal as I call it. Yeah, that's normal. Um, today, we're at 17 and a half, and that's pretty much smack dab in the midpoint of where it's been since the, the start of the VIX in 1990. Um, in the middle of COVID, VIX spiked up to all-time highs yeah. of, uh, call it 85, right? And and so when looking at different risk models, those that have shorter um, look-back periods and, and quote-unquote time decay, um, post that spike in March, and then by the end of the year, the VIX was back down to call it 2025. Um, but but using various risk models, those with the, the longer term lookbacks, mm-hmm. which are less sensitive, which are great for not necessarily getting whipsawed in and out when volatility spikes and then two weeks later, it's back down to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, those longer term lookback periods were still at the end of 2020 when markets had recovered and, and had multiple quarters of, of really strong returns would have had you still hedging your portfolio. Whereas those with the shorter look back periods kind of moved away from that time window of the really sharp rise in volatility for only a few, call it weeks to, to, to a month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so generally what we'll look at is the longer term less sensitive risk models as a signal for when to hedge and the more sensitive risk models as a signal as to when to take hedges off right in volatility oriented portfolios and the reason why i'm asking just to let everybody know the reason why i'm asking about like why is he talking about the vix so much and the volatility because tom actually manages the franklin vol smart allocation fund which uh, you know we talked about a couple of days ago that we you know we, obviously we 
there's compliance issues. We can't talk about things when it comes to fund managers about everything. We could talk around the subject though, right? What it generally does. Yeah. So that in fact is looking to invest, but, but, but manage some of the tail risk, right? So that, that has two components of volatility mitigation to it. One is similar to what we've been talking about, whereby the portfolio will de-risk when volatility exceeds and breaches a certain threshold. And we'll use those standard risk models to, to measure when to, to, re-risk, to de-risk and how much of a hedge to put on. And then secondly, what it does is it actually uses volatility as an investment. And when you see periods of extreme levels of volatility, the, there are VIX futures out there and you can look at the curve from spot VIX out to a couple of years out into the future. And when that curve goes into backwardation uh, in that it's, it's, it's downwardly sloping. So near-term volatility is higher than longer-term volatility. When that occurs, it actually buys VIX futures to, to use volatility as an asset and actually go long volatility in periods of extreme market dislocations. And then when volatility normalizes and goes back into contango where longer dated volatility is priced higher than shorter dated volatility, it takes that that long volatility position off. So for and those so of you, for those of you that, let me just say something, just don't, don't, don't turn the station yet. These are big words. They basically mean, it's kind of like the yield curve. It's when it's normal or when it's inverted. That's kind of yeah. the same concept. But in Absolutely. futures, for whatever reason, they had to use these bizarre words like contango and backwardation. So, uh, but point is, I think what Tom's saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, is when, when we get that inverted, not right, not normal look, that's when you have to start playing and doing things to manage the tail risk. It's no, it, 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 and when it's normal, you don't need it as much. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, and, that's and the simplest it's terms. It's engaged very, very infrequently. You know, it, we will go years without that tail hedge kicking in, um, and we haven't had that tail hedge kick in since uh, since two thousand for that particular portfolio. Let's switch over to target date funds. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, maybe we should stop for a second and say, with all of this going on and all the concern of volatility and all people freaking out about everything, by the way. Everybody's freaking out, right? You know, I got I got I got people calling me. Hey, I'm going to invest. You know, do me a favor. We're going to let's load up when when this happens, or let's get out if that happens. Like, wait, wait, wait. That's not how this all works exactly. But um, nonetheless, where are we from? You know, VIX is not anywhere to be concerned. It also leads me to believe mm-hmm. that people are pretty much numb from the from the waist up uh, with mm-hmm. market issues. They're kind of tired. They're overwhelmed. I think there's something to be said about that's a grand plan without being too conspiratorial of let's just constantly freak people out. And then it just numbs everybody to everything. I mean, even, even the, the, the constant discussion for Belarus about a nuclear war that you can get, you know, you want to join us, we'll give you nuclear weapons. Like, ah, psh, who cares, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a, of that, of that, of that, um, you know, frog in the pot concept of boiling, you know, and versus throwing them in yeah. versus boiling them slowly. Where are we right now in the big scheme of things? We are in, a, in an interest rate environment that we haven't seen in decades. We are in an earnings slowdown, approximately 10%, give or take. We'll see how it ends. Year-over-year uh, year reduction in uh, S&P 500 earnings. And yet everything is just all happy-pappy. Yeah. Um, and the the term that we use is um, is foggy. 
Um, the the environment is 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 quite foggy right now. Um, markets have been resilient. The economy's been resilient, uh, and the consumer's been resilient. And when we think about kind of the, the the macro backdrop and 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 where to place um, allocation decisions, we first think about the growth outlook. And we're believers that kind of the economic cycle is the most important factor influencing risk asset returns, all else being equal. Um, we'll then look at inflation, rates, policy. Those are all kind of inextricably tied. And then finally, kind of where sentiment and, and, and positioning sits. And this is generally uh, with kind of a one-year investment time horizon, if you will. On And on growth, if you take the economic, economic cycle and map it into whether growth is positive or negative, whether growth is accelerating or decelerating, you can naively get a sense for whether things are good or bad mm-hmm. and getting better or getting worse. Um, and I'll, I'll use that that kind of nomenclature at home because my wife's eyes glaze over when I come home and talk about work. And, and it, you know, it's but she can she can get the is are things good? Are they bad? Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? And it's that kind of second derivative that's most important for returns, i.e. are things get, getting better or are they getting worse? And when leading indicators of growth are accelerating, things getting better. Mm-hmm. The S&P over the last 70 years returns about 15.5%. And when things are decelerating, i.e. getting worse, you have about zero returns to stocks. And that compares to about 7% on average. And so where we stand today, economic growth in the U.S. is decelerating, not good. Um, However, that rate of deceleration is slightly negative. Again, not good. So overall, the outlook based upon leading indicator analysis is not great and and not improving. And so that would um, lead us to be a little bit defensive. There are regions of the world where leading indicators are looking better and, and are getting better. And that has us pivoting for the first time in, in probably about a decade, some of our regional equity tilts a bit towards places like Japan and Europe. And so we're officially kind of neutral on, on stocks versus bonds. Um, inflation's still too high, but it's clearly coming down. The Fed has aggressively tightened over the last 15 months. And we know that monetary policy operates with a lag. And, and so we're fairly confident that the impact of the Fed rate hikes um, is a tightening of financial conditions, which is which is constricting towards towards growth. And that's kind of leading us down that that path of the expected path of least resistance is for you know modest continued deterioration, i.e. getting worse of of economic growth. And the Fed's kind of in a tight spot, right? If they continue to hike rates, they risk plunging the economy into a recession. If they pause a reverse course, they're likely doing so before the inflation fight is done. And um, and they'd probably be pausing because growth is um, has been has been stunted and is negative, and that's not a good thing either. So, where we are overall, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, the banking turbulence further complicates things, um, and so we're of the view that for the time being, equities rates like Treasuries, credit like corporate bonds, investment grade, and high yield should trade in a range. But kind of those error bands and the uncertainty, that yeah. fogginess has widened out. Yep. Um, and and there's more skewness to the to the downside. And so um it's a very tricky environment, but it leads us to be positioned kind of modestly defensive. So so in the in the in the in the language of Bloomberg, 
Mm-hmm. You're pretty much putting up an RRG. You know what I'm talking about here? You know RRG? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that function, the RRG. This one, that was one of my favorite functions. Actually, I've recreated that on my own, utilizing data and Excel. Um, yeah. Not yeah. with all their inside stuff on how they're – but it basically what is the bottom left is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and for those of you that don't know what it means, relative rotation graph, uh, what this means is it, it shows you in four different quadrants um, two different things along the axes of – Things are essentially getting worse, and then the uh, over a longer period of time, it's shorter, and it kind of starts rotating to see like what's leading, and then it does a relative basis of against the other ones. Is that does that sound right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you- and we do that we do that for the economy across you know various regions and and the globe overall, just to kind of see where we are in terms of in terms of uh, the the growth um, trajectory. So just to uh, Bring us to to um, a couple of other points here, because again, you know, I had the big list to talk to you about. Uh, I want to talk about target date funds specifically because mm-hmm. that's what you you manage, and sometimes they get a little bit of a bad rap. Let's be honest, you yeah. know, there's kind of uh, you know, there's like, oh, what do they do and all. But I think what you have to say is going to tell me a lot better uh, uh, more. I want to just back up for a second though, talk about cash as an investment, and there was Tina, and there was Tara. You know, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, recently what I what I looked at our portfolio said, you know what, I'm taking down credit risk. I'm taking down credit risk. I don't, I don't give a crap. I said the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is, what am I trying to gain by being invested in a bond? And you, you, I want you to come at me as hard as you can if you want on this. You know, you won't hurt my feelings. I said, what is the point uh, of of my investment in a bond in bonds? You know, for for a portfolio. And I said, well, it's, mm-hmm. it's a buffer supposedly of of risk. It is an opportunity to get um, you know. Uh, uh, interest and potentially some upside if 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 we can get there, right? Depending on on the uh, manager's abilities and things of that nature. But essentially, mm-hmm. it was a diversifier, right? And when you look back to 2022, where pretty much nothing worked, some things were worse than others, but everything was bad. Everything was bad, um, and bonds did not work, by the way. And now, right. as no, so so now, take my my basic definition of why I am invested in bonds, and mm-hmm. I say, you know what, I'm going to take down some of that credit risk in my. Um, and duration risk, right? So maturity, duration risk, I'm going to take that down. I'm going to stick it in a, in a money market or buy treasuries at 5% round number because mm-hmm. if I can get 5% of my bonds, generally speaking, I'd be happy. That's what without risk, right? No risk or very little risk, 5%. Mm-hmm. So why should I be playing with the bond exposure at this point? Yeah, very good question. And as I mentioned, we're kind of positioned defensively, uh, which – basically implies we're underweight stocks um, and we're splitting that overweight between bonds overall, because there are reasonable alternatives today, as you, as you mentioned, Tara um, and cash. And so we are recommending that a certain portion of your portfolio beyond just kind of frictional cash and, and cra- transactional cash um, be invested in the market at, at shorter term levels of, of interest with you know, treasury bills, yielding in excess of 5%. It's the first time that we've seen that and in, in call it kind of 15 years or so. Um, and so we we do recommend a, a certain portion there. Uh, our fixed income research team will recommend being overweight bonds a bit too. Um, we have taken our, our 
quality higher in in corporates like you you were talking about selling credit so we're we're underweight high yield we're um we're kind of neutral on investment grade and and we're overweight treasuries um and that that kind of speaks to the to the foggy outlook um one of the one of the things that longer dated bonds offer the opportunity for but certainly not no guarantee um but the opportunity for is in an environment where if we see one inflation continue to come down and two economic growth continue to deteriorate you will likely see lower rates of interest particularly at the longer end of the curve so in addition to the income that you'll receive from the coupons on those bonds there is opportunity for capital appreciation as well when you say um, the longer term longer part of the bond you're talking about the, the 20 plus call it 10 year the 10-year. Yeah, the 10-year, I would say, because the belly's got to come down more, I would think, right now yeah. with that inversion. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it's like uh, my belly how it comes down after a big dinner. You know what I'm saying? Just flops down. Mm -hmm. uh, but but what talk – let's let's go to – so take that now and let's talk about uh, target target date. First, for those people that don't know what target date funds are, uh, would you please give us a definition? Sure. So the basic premise behind target date funds is that – investors select the fund that one decision best equates their anticipated retirement date and the fund keeps that investor in the market and well diversified and at a level of risk that's appropriate for someone of their approximate age at all times throughout their pre-retirement years so that kind of set it and forget it simplicity is the major reason for the explosion in the tdf or target date fund popularity and they've become quite commonly utilized tools, particularly in like 401k plans where the Department of Labor has blessed them as a QDIA, which stands for Qualified Default Investment Alternative. Um, and so basically that's saying the Department of Labor who oversees all of these, these corporate 401k plans has blessed target date funds as a sound investment for use in those portfolios. But it's basically, how old am I? Generally, when am I going to retire? And, and the default age is, is call it age 65. And it will automatically keep you in the market and keep you at a level of kind of risk tolerance that's appropriate for you. And that'll evolve over time and get kind of more and more conservative as you get closer to retirement. Just to clarify, what Tom's talking about here is when he says in the market, that doesn't mean stocks. He means invested. In a, diver, in a yeah. diversified manner versus being in cash and out of investments. So when he says market, don't equate that just to equities. The uh, Does your firm, do you do, I really don't know the answer to this, so forgive me. Do you do um, some of these quadrant-based um, target-dated funds where, for example, if I do, you could do like a target date 2040, but aggressive versus conservative. You follow what I'm saying? Um, yes, I do. No, we don't. Uh, so in yeah, that's the good because I find it confusing. Those are ridiculous. Yeah. In the in the target date fund space, we do not. Um, our team manages a couple of state five twenty nine plans, and one of those five twenty nine plans does have a conservative and a moderate and an aggressive track to them, uh, as well as kind of the 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 age of the of the the beneficiary, i.e., you know, the person that you're saving for higher education, typically college for. Right. But for the most part, uh, it's kind of a singular, what they refer to as glide path or or asset allocation that, that evolves throughout time. 
when you see things that we're seeing right now, I call it a sinkhole. Uh, there's a couple different things that I, I, I use as descriptives that right now we have a situation where, for example, the large caps, which uh, indices are based on and, and, and created to have a heavy exposure, to have the returns are related to the market cap. So it's market cap weighted for the S&P 500, mm -hmm. Nasdaq 100 versus the Dow, which is price weighted, of course. And with the current state of affairs of maybe a safety trade, maybe just a, I don't know, a trend where money's going into the mega caps and that's taken up the markets and particularly in the growth area um, mm -hmm. and technology area. Um, you know, I, I call this kind of a sinkhole environment. Whereas underneath there is the river flowing of broken down ground. And that we're seeing that in many different sectors, right? We're seeing that the, the, the small caps, are getting mm -hmm. hurt. We're seeing the value in banks are getting plowed. We're seeing that energy is coming off its highs pretty dramatically. And you go down the list and even some consumer discretionary, depending on where you are, is getting hit. And, you know, we still have that cover, though. If you were driving over it, you'd never know. you never know. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, that's like investing in the index. Do you think that sinkhole is going to open up? Oh, goodness. I wish I had a crystal ball on that. Um, <laughs> I understand. But yeah, you, you and, see what I'm saying, though, right? This is oh, yeah. I've seen this before. I've seen this movie many times before. And in, 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 until you you're like, oh, I guess it's not going to happen. Then all of a sudden, one day it just breaks. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the easiest ways to spot kind of the differential between the average stock and and the S&P 500, just to use that as, as kind of the proxy for the broad stock market, um, is to compare the returns to an equal weighted index where each of those 500 stocks represent 0.2% um, weight within the index relative to the S&P 500 itself, which is capitalization weighted. So the largest companies have, have the largest weight within them. Year to date, um, the equal weighted index is basically flat. So you have a very close to 0% total return since the end of December, whereas the market itself, the S&P 500, capitalization weight. It is up about 10%. Um, and just, to be clear, just to be clear, that yeah. is a very wide range. Yes. And yeah. the and, and if you really break that down, you have to look at where does that come from? The XX perform, excess performance and the outperformance comes from the top, I'm calling it, I'll go 15 names. And that's what's really um, pushing. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, Nine stocks have contributed all of the return in the S&P 500 year to date. You know, like I said, sinkhole, sinkhole. <laughs> Good stuff. Listen, I really appreciate you coming on board and we'll put all the ways that people could, uh, you know, find out more about the, uh, the Franklin Templeton funds and what you're doing with your various, you know, the next step and ball smart. And of course the, the um, asset allocation and target date funds on there. So I appreciate it. Good stuff uh, going on here. And, and, and I'm really happy we had the opportunity to spend some time together and, and talking this out and then bring it to my audience because they love this stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much. Tom, see you soon. Thanks. All right. Thanks. And as I say, that's a wrap. Good stuff. Good talk on asset allocation. I think that's a really important um, item, especially because, you know, sometimes you can be offsided so dramatically in your portfolio. And if you have ro uh, proper diversification, at least you'll catch some of it, right? If you believe that, well, I should be out of technology entirely, but that's one thing. 
But if you have asset allocation and properly positioned and diversified, you're going to have a piece of it. That's the that's how it all works. Maybe less, maybe a little bit more at times. Fact is that at least you're not going to be left out of the party. Thanks for joining me this week and every week, and I'm going to see you again next week. Bye-bye for now. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 